0: Good morning. Good morning. It was a terrible Super Bowl. I know you agree. And uh, last night I was in Charlottesville to watch UVA get crushed by Duke, which was also very terrible. It was like a funeral down there. Uh, so uh, I, let me tell you uh, something right up front uh, is that, you know, I, some of you know this, but I have this vestibular problem. So I sit down uh, a lot. And most times when I sit down, it goes away. But today in the 9.30 service, sitting down, it didn't even go away then, and so you're going to see me like, what? Why, why does he get to drink? <laughs> What's going on there? But uh, I, I barely made it through the first service, so I just want you to know, if it's your first time here, and like, I fall down on stage, like, I went to a new church today, and the pastor was drunk, <laughs> and make it really exciting, so just... Just want to put it out there. It's uh, it's for whatever reason. It's a tough day. It's a tough day for me. It's just tough sitting down. And we're just my. I have my. As I said before, my vestibular system is kind of out of whack, and trying to figure that out. But uh, so here we are. The good news for you is it might be a shorter sermon. <laughs> and than, uh, than normal, I go to weddings a lot. And, um, you know, one of the things about weddings, one of the most moving things is hearing the wedding toast at the reception afterwards. I've heard some fantastic, like deeply, deeply moving toasts that are given. Um, But on the opposite side of that, everybody, I've heard some really bad toasts that just, I mean, really, really bad. I just want to say, just on behalf of bride and grooms. If, if a bride or groom ever asks you, hey, would you give the toast at my wedding? Could you stand up for me, the bride, or me, the groom, whatever? Here's, here's what I want to ask on behalf of them. Would you please put some time and energy into it? Hey, would you think about it and write some things down or maybe even research what makes a good wedding toast? And then finally, just like don't drink a lot of alcohol before the toast because I've seen people actually had to take microphones away and the person up there, and it's really, it's, you know, it's tough, it's embarrassing, awkward, and I want to tell you about one of those situations now. It's at a wedding, a big wedding, big wedding, very formal, very nice, very fancy, it was awesome. And here we come to this incredible reception, and the person giving the toast gets up there, and he looks at the bride and groom and says, Why are you getting married? And my mind's thinking, I was like, "Whoa, man! That's a very tense start." But um, you know, they're going to bring it around somehow, right? And then they started going through this whole thing about, you know, you have a fifty-fifty chance; it's a flip of the coin. Like you're right here in just a gentle breeze, one way or the other, is going to blow your marriage over. And I, in my mind, I was like, oh, man, you're really starting this thing off well. You have everybody's attention. Surely you're going to come around and say, but you guys love each other. You're not like everybody else. And they never did. <laughs> and just they said, See you. You know, they sat down and they, they left it that way. Now, I want to say uh, one thing because we operate under the assumption that the divorce rate is 50%. It actually is not everybody. just But we operate under that assumption that it is. Most people do because that's the number you hear battered around all the time. This is not a sermon on marriage, but um, it's a sermon about always and forever. But we hear that all the time. Actually, the divorce rate is much lower. If you lump every divorce in there, you know, people who've been married four, five, six, seven times like Elizabeth Taylor, they lump everything in. It comes out at 50%. But if you take somebody who was married by age 24 or older and they both have a bachelor's degree, they have education, which is a lot in this area, uh, the divorce rate actually is less than 30%. I don't know if you knew that or not. So, but, uh, the thing is, is most people go into marriage thinking it's actually 50%. And so my real point in this introduction is this. What is it about us that is so deeply moved that even thinking going in that we have a flip of the coin chance that that we desire this forever, this no matter what love, this always and forever. Philosophers, some philosophers will tell you, the fact that humanity is so deeply moved by this idea of always and forever, a no matter what love, means that somewhere, somewhere, actually, it exists. Oh, look at our love songs. We don't sing love songs about, you know... I'm going to love you for this weekend, you know? (laughs) I mean, the love songs are forever. That's why the message is entitled today, Always and Forever. I mean, that song just says this, I'll always love you forever and ever. How about this song, Endless Love? Anybody remember who sang that song? Anybody? Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, right? Endless, always. Whitney Houston, what did she sing? I will always love you, right? So we say in weddings, till death do me part. That's fairly serious. Till death do me part. It's not like, I'm going to love you until this honeymoon is over. And then maybe, you know, We never. I've never done a wedding like that. I always do this wedding. And very passionate, tears coming down the eyes. I will always forever love you. We're moved deeply by that. Well, what happens when we find out that God loves us like that? this no matter what kind of love. What if we find out that God will always be faithful to us regardless of how faithful we are back to God? What happens with that? Today I want to I want to talk about that and I want to talk about our concept of salvation and what that has to do with the book of Romans. But before I do that, I would like us to do something that I've been thinking about us doing for weeks and weeks but we're gonna we're gonna do it today, and we might do it for the rest of the series. I would love for us to read together Romans one sixteen. It's on the screen. It's on the back of your bulletin. It's like the key verse in the book of Romans. Romans one sixteen. And then I just want to say a few things about it. And then we're gonna bust into Romans three one 2, eight, which is what this message is really all about. So can we can we just read this together? This powerful verse. Ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Three things. First of all, Paul, for some reason, feels compelled to write, I am not ashamed and not ashamed of what of the gospel. The whole of Romans is a clarification on what the gospel is. And when we have the gospel clarified to us, no matter who we are or where we are spiritually, there is something in the gospel that makes us uncomfortable. So actually, if Paul... Through this series so far, we're in week five, and we still have a few weeks to go. If you haven't felt uncomfortable yet, it is possible from what he's saying is that you haven't yet felt the power of the gospel. Because when you begin to feel the power and it's been clearly explained from Paul to you, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. So hopefully at some point during this series, you are going to feel uncomfortable And I want to tell you that that is a good thing, not a bad thing. And what Paul is saying is you are beginning to grasp what the gospel is and its power. I want us to get over the idea that we come to church just to feel comfortable. Paul is saying we actually come to church to sometimes feel very uncomfortable if that church is focused on the gospel. That's a good thing. If you went to the gym all the time and all you felt was comfortable... You probably need to change gyms. He says it's a power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is a power. Is it really powerful? The word that he uses is dynamite. It's the Greek word that we get for dynamite, right? It's that powerful. It's like dynamite power, is it? And I've talked about all kinds of ways that it's been powerful. But let me just, um, let me get, you know, I'm realizing right now because I, I, have, I have oil. They prayed for me in between. I don't know if you could see that. I bet the cameras can see it. Because they always tell me, get that oil. They put oil on my head. Okay, all right. That's what happens when you have a problem in church and they all pray for you. Um, Power. So here's the the reality, everybody. This is just statistically true. You ask people today, is our world in a better place? And a lot of people say, oh, no. We'll say no because we have 24-hour news. But statistically speaking, our world in the last 2,000 years is radically better. Ra- not a little bit, not a tiny bit. Yes, they're excited. <laughs> radically, radically better. Since the time of Jesus Christ who came along and preached against injustice and for equality and for love, right? Radically better. So it has been very powerful. And then lastly, it says it's for salvation. So here's the question I just really want you to keep in your mind. What is your concept of salvation? Like, what is salvation? If you had to explain salvation to somebody, how would you explain it? from a Christian perspective. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you're not a church person, you're like, okay, but how would I explain how what the Christians believe or what Jesus believes or what the Bible believes about? salvation? What is your concept of salvation? I want you to think about that. How will you explain it to somebody? Okay? Now, Paul here in Romans 3, 1 to 8, somebody had said recently to me that their favorite movie was a movie called Whiplash. I don't know if you all have seen the movie Whiplash. I have not. I have no idea what it's about. So, why am I bringing it up? Because scholars will tell you as you go through the book of Romans, he hits you in one, he hits you in two, and then in in three, he takes a brief pause for the first eight verses and then hits you again. And he's just, you're feeling whiplashed all around truth and grace and back and forth. And here in these eight verses, he's like, okay, let's take a time out. This is what he's doing. And he's asking us to think about three questions. He's anticipating what people in the church, in the Roman church, what their question is. And here's what the questions are. And then we're going to go through the verses. Number one, is there any advantage to being faithful? Because he said, you know, he's going to say, apart from the law, you, you've been made right with God. So apart from being faithful, you've been made right. And you know the things that he's already said that we've gone through in Romans 1 and 2. It's like, okay, well, wait a minute, time out. Is there any advantage to being faithful? Second question, what happens when you're not faithful? Third question. Should we just go ahead and be unfaithful in order to shine a light on God's faithfulness? Here are the three questions that are being uh, asked and kind of answered in some way here. Let's read through them. Verse number one, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? So, so, so what does that mean in context to Romans? It means you are faithful to the law. You're, like you're a churchgoer or you have morals or morality. What advantage is there until you actually spending your time and energy to be faithful? Faithful to follow uh, Jesus' way or follow what you read in the Bible? Is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Right. Circumcision represents everything about following the law, okay? It means being faithful to what you read in Scripture. All right. And he answers. He says, much in every way, exclamation point. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. I want you to focus in on that word words because the word that is used there in Greek is the word logos. It's an important Greek concept. If you read John chapter one, it says the, in the beginning was the word and the word became all it's the word logos. And here's what logos means. It means how does life work? How does life work? And what, They understood here in Romans, what they understood from Jesus Christ is that he was the logos. And finally, he was unlocking a riddle about how life works best. This was their concept of salvation. There was all kinds of ideas. Do this, do this, live this way, live this way. He says, no, 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 no. Here is the riddle that has been solved that living Christ way actually is the way that life works best. He is the Logos. That is what it means to be Logos. So they were understanding. I was reading I was reading this past week. Great book. Academic scholars would tell you it's one of the best books ever written on understanding the first century churches, the Roman churches, understanding of salvation and evangelism. And they felt that the riddle had been solved by Jesus Christ, and they were willing to give their entire lives for it that our universe, that the ultimate force of our universe is love. And they didn't see that before. And so here you have Jesus Christ, and he comes along, and he's serving. Now, that messes them totally up. God comes down. Great people are to be served, not serve. And, of course, God Almighty should never do any serving. He should be served by everybody else. And here Jesus shows up. He says, I am God, and I'm going to serve all of you. And they're like, what? This was a concept that they didn't. Now, we have some of these concepts now. And we take him for granted. But that was one that just absolutely blew their mind. He's giving. He is forgiving. He is pursuing truth and justice as well as mercy and grace. And they're seeing him do that. It says they understood that if we live like Jesus lived, that life will work. This is what they understood. This is what... This is what they were coming to the understanding of, that if we applied Jesus' teaching to our lives, that life will work. So Jesus says these famous words that a lot of people take as very offensive and very exclusive. He says in John, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. Many of you have heard that before. Some of you heard people say it in a very um, kind of exclusionary, offensive way, or like a self-righteous way, and that bugs you. It bugs the life out of you. What I want to say today is, please, that is not meant to be an arrogant statement. It is a highly practical statement. John starts the whole gospel off in John with he is the logos. He is showing you practically how life works. It's a practical statement, not an arrogant statement. There is absolutely nothing arrogant, everybody, about praying for your enemies, which Jesus did. There's nothing arrogant about serving people or washing their feet. There's nothing arrogant about that. Here's what I've noticed about my life. When I choose to follow the ways of Jesus Christ, and I'm patient, and I watch my words, and they're kind, and I watch my tone with my wife or other people around me, I've just noticed something. Life changes works a whole lot better. When I'm honest and I'm true and I'm kind and I'm patient and I stand for truth, I find that life just works better. Don't know about you, but I find that it works better. So that statement is simply a practical statement that if you follow the ways of Christ, yeah. Actually, I think everybody believes Jesus's statement. I just think we don't understand what he's trying to say there oftentimes. And then we get caught up in all the self-righteousness and arrogance. It's not an arrogant statement. It's just a statement about the way life works. And so Paul writes here, we have been given the logos. We've been given the logos. And what advantage is that? Every advantage in the world because life just works so much better. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So, so set up in the beginning, saying, okay, all right, I got it. What if people, God is always faithful. So what if people are unfaithful, will God stop being faithful? He's saying, absolutely not. God is going to be utterly faithful, no matter what kind of love, regardless of our faithfulness. And then he quotes, he quotes David in the Psalms. King David, I just a little piece of his story. This is from Psalm 51, after his tremendous sin with Bathsheba. I want to describe this to you real quickly. David, ter- terrible childhood. Some of us in this room have had a terrible childhood. He had a terrible childhood, right? He was looked down upon and ignored and forgotten by his father. His brothers couldn't stand him. Uh, they maligned him. They disparaged him. This is, what, this is the way he, 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 he grew up. But God gave him a great skill for slingshots, didn't he? So David has this thing. And even if you don't know the Bible, many, if you watch sports, then you've heard of David and? Yes, right? So you don't have to actually read the Bible. You just watch ESPN. You, you hear about David. And God. So he takes down this huge giant, right? Which probably shows he's really smart because he thought out of the box. He thought, I don't even have to get close to this guy. Just kill him from a distance, right? So he stinks out. So he's probably very, very smart. He's also very, very humble, but he has this great skill. He marries, as a result of the Goliath situation, the king's daughter. It just catapults him to being quite famous. King Saul gets very jealous, and he runs him off. Like, King Saul tries to throw a spear at him a couple different times, and, and David eludes him. So now David, check this out. Now he's living like a dog in a cave, running for his life. And while he is, while King Saul is hunting him down, he's got a few really brave, super highly skilled warriors. Like, these guys were awesome soldiers, Sealed team six, right? This is who surrounds him, and they're very loyal to him. And they could have been with King Saul, and they could have been living in mansions with King Saul because they're so skilled, but instead they choose to live in caves because they're loyal to David, these highly skilled guys. Well, eventually King Saul dies. David gets the throne, and now all of his guys, you know, they're in Jerusalem, right? There they are, and everything's, er everything's going great. And then after a couple of decades into this thing, at a time, it says, when kings go off to war, David decides to stay home. And one of his best friends' name was Uriah, who had been with him out in that desert, a highly skilled warrior, an exceptional soldier, very loyal to him. David sees his wife and takes her. She becomes pregnant. To cover up this terrible thing that he's done, he brings Uriah home. Uriah refuses to go in and sleep with his wife while his brothers in arms are out in the field fighting. So David says, Oh man, this is terrible. So he gets him drunk, hoping that when he gets drunk, he would do this. So he doesn't. So when he sends Uriah back to the front line, he sends word to his general whatever you do, make sure that Uriah, one of my great friends, one of my loyal soldiers, is killed. So Uriah gets killed. Bathsheba is pregnant. Eventually, David is found out. The consequences for his unfaithfulness were horrific. Like his family was never the same. His own son tried to kill him, tried to run him off. It's just really terrible. But the point of Psalm 51 is even in the face of tremendous unfaithfulness, even though there's tremendous consequences to what's happened, God is still faithful. Now, everybody, now here we are. Now we've come to Paul's big conclusion. In the face of that tremendous faithfulness of God that no matter what kind of love, how should I respond to that? Like, how should you and I respond to the fact that God is going to love us no matter what? Should, should we just like, oh, thank you. I've actually had these conversations before and people have looked at me and say, so why am I even trying? So why do I go to church or why do I even try to follow the ways of Christ? Because he's going to love me anyway, so I'm just going to do anything I want. Here we go. Let's read what they have to say. This is awesome. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And he says, I'm using a human argument. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood, in other words, being unfaithful to to, to the rules of the Bible, the laws, whatever, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And he says their condemnation is just. What is your concept of salvation? What does it mean? So their concept was this, that, okay, well, if you're telling us that God is going to be faithful to us no matter what we do, well, then we're just going to live any way we want and by us living any way we want, it's just going to bring more glory to God. So this is all great. This is a great deal for me. Paul's saying that's not the right concept of salvation and it's not what is presented to us by Jesus Christ. And this is where we need to, this is where we need to drill into today. What does the Bible have to say about salvation and eternal life and and being a follower of Jesus Christ? So the Bible doesn't mention this very often, but Jesus specifically focuses on a salvation and eternal life in John 17. And I'd like to read that verse to you. Jesus says, now this is eternal life. All right, so now we stop. We say, okay. So the Bible, like, I don't think it actually ever zeroes in like this. And so when Jesus says that, we all stand up and say, okay, he's talking about the one thing that we're really interested in. I mean, if anything, if anything a church is about, it's in the salvation business. So now we stand up and say, okay, Jesus, from the words of the master, what is salvation? How does somebody get saved? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. They know you. That is a very important word in the Bible. It's all about relationships. Many times, what I hear, what you've heard, what I grew up, maybe you grew up with, or at least you heard on the TV or a radio somewhere, or you asked somebody that was a churchgoer or a Christian, how do you get saved? And you say, You say the sinner's prayer, you get your ticket punched, and you're on the way to heaven. That's pretty much it. So, salvation is all about get out of here and get up there. And that is what I'm doing. And the way to get there is to say the sinner's prayer. The difficult thing is, what, what theologians realize is there's not really a model sinner's prayer in the Bible. So this is a problem for us. What's up with that? And also, there's not a clear definition of what it means to be a Christian. Like, if you were to ask a theologian today, what does it mean to be a Christian The average theologian, most, majority, would simply say, and they would give you a list. It means one, two, three, four, five, that you hold these beliefs. The problem with that is it's not defined in Scripture. What you actually get in Scripture is you don't even see the word Christian. The word Christian shows up three times. And it's not defined. What you get in Scripture is all these things that followers of Jesus Christ, what do they do? So here's the fill in the blank. Salvation is not transactional. It's relational. This is really, this actually is really important. Salvation, if I spill this on these clothes, it's going to be terrible. It's blue. It's going to be nuts. Salvation is not transactional. It is relational. It's not about, I say this prayer. I say I believe this. And I get my ticket punched on the train. And now I'm heaven bound. That is the most common of salvation. What You're born again. You're born again to the realization that I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I have woken up to this idea that I want to go to heaven and Jesus Christ is the ticket and I say the words and I say the prayer and here I go. That is the most common concept of what it means to be saved, getting my ticket punched. And we gather right? for an hour every Sunday to kind of be reassure to the fact that our ticket has been punched and to encourage other people who haven't been, you're on the train, but you haven't had your ticket punched. And so just so you don't get thrown off the train, we can get your ticket punched today, right? What exactly is salvation? So Jesus says something really important in Matthew 28. It's, we call it in theological world, we call it the great commission, this great commission. This is what he's told us to go do. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. What you'll find in Scripture is hundreds of times the Bible talks about discipleship. What is a disciple? It's when you... Have somebody that you're following so you know, I want to I reflect everything about you, your values, your decisions, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you act. That's what a disciple would do 2,000 years ago. I want to be ingrained in everything about your life, and I simply want to reflect it over and over and over again. And Jesus says, go out and teach people to do that. And all I'm saying is, is it seems to me that our concept, the most common concept is, is I go out and teach people to pray a sinner's prayer and say, now you're headed to heaven. And this is their, what's blowing their minds is their understanding that they're waking up to a way of life, not a destination. They're waking up to a way of life, not a destination. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus says, wake up, arise and wake up to a way of life. And this is what discipleship is. In Matthew 10.10, I mean, John 10, 10, Jesus says, my purpose is to give life in all of its fullness. What is he saying there? How can we live this life that we truly long to live? He says, if you follow me, if you're my disciple, if you follow the ways that I have modeled before you and you live like this, then you're going to really, really, really be living. This is what it means to be saved, to live like me. So Jesus says in Luke 19, very important story, He's got this guy, his name is Zacchaeus. We've talked about him before. He's a bad guy. He's stealing from people. He's very greedy. Uh, he's a tax collector. He's, a, he's like a, a big overseer of other tax collectors. He has the Roman army at his disposal, and so he extorts money out of people. He's very, very rich, right? It's terrible. A lot of, un, a lot of injustice. Jesus, of all things, freaks everybody out and goes to his house. Like, what are you doing hanging out with this guy? He's a terrible, wicked person. And Zacchaeus, without saying the sinner's prayer, without saying, okay, I believe, boom, 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 he says, you know what? I'm going to stop being greedy. I'm going to pay everybody back. Matter of fact, I'm going to pay them back more. I'm going to give more money than I actually took from them. I'm going to make things right. And then Jesus, this crazy statement he makes is today salvation has come to your house. Because when we actually begin to live out and do the very things that Christ taught, when we become a follower of his, This is why in the book of Acts, it constantly says about those people who are Christians, which again, the word Christian is never used. It says they were followers of the way. When we live that way, when we live that way, salvation breaks through into our hearts. It's an an amazing thing and a very different concept. So there's a lot of emphasis on doing John 7, 17 says it this way. Jesus speaking, anyone who chooses to to do the will of God, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So here's an interesting concept about getting saved. And we, you know, I've done this every single week since this series began. You know, would you like to say a prayer? And there's nothing wrong with that. To receive Christ as your Savior. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus says, here's a great way, actually, to enter into his kingdom and to find out if he is the way, the truth, and the life actually begin to test out the very principles that Christ stood on. And then he says, you will find out if it is true or not. There's a lot of emphasis on doing. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At the end of that sermon where Jesus has told us about the values of his kingdom over and over again, he says at the end, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does what? Puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Our problem, you know, for somebody who's like, this is professional church people, right? This is what we do for a living is we study the Bible. The thing that we would like to see out of the Bible is a systematic theology. We want to see that. We want to see, okay, Christian is bam, bam, bam. And the problem that all academics will tell you is there's not a systematic theology in the Bible. And the closest thing you'll find to it is the book of Romans, which we're studying right now. And everybody will tell you, it's not a systematic theology. We would like to see a lot of orthodoxy, what you believe in the Bible. And there is orthodoxy clearly in the Bible. But what you have is a very large amount of orthopraxy, what disciples, what followers actually do. And that changes everything, everything. It, it actually lifts up the very point of what Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and do as I did. So when we say salvation is I say the sinner's prayer and I have my ticket punched and I go to heaven, it totally undermines discipleship, which is what Jesus Christ says this is really all about. What is your understanding of how you get saved? How does that work for you? And um, AA, the 12-step program, you know what the 12th and final step is? It's a spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening. You have awakened to a new way of living. What they had discovered 2,000 years ago as a result of Jesus Christ being the Logos, they didn't wake up to the fact that, oh, I would really like to go to heaven and Jesus is the way. They woke up that Jesus is the way and I should live the way Jesus lived. And that's what it means to walk with him and be a disciple of his. And now it's not, I'm focused on, I want to get to the good place up there. Instead, I want to live out the values of what's up there, right here. Jesus makes that clear. They awoke to that. They woke up to that fact. George MacDonald, who who C.S. Lewis, many people haven't heard of George MacDonald, but many people heard of C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis said George MacDonald was his master. That's how much he thought of George MacDonald. And MacDonald said to obey Jesus is to ascend. To the pinnacle of my being. To obey Jesus is to ascend to the pinnacle of my being. It's not transactional. It's very relational. To look at it, I just want to get out of here and go up there, minimizes discipleship and undermines it terribly. Where is heaven and hell? There's a show out right now called The Good Place. I haven't watched it, but I've read about it, and I've heard about it. That's the common concept. I want to get to. I want to get out of this place and to get to the good place. I just want to throw something out for thought for you right now, just to think about. It's totally off subject, but I have to say it. You know, we 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 want to hide a lot from God, and we want to do stuff, and we don't want him actually to see this. We're like, oh, I hope he didn't notice that I did that wrong or something. You know what I'm saying? But everybody wants to go to heaven, where God is in your space. 100% 100% of the time. Are you sure you want to go to heaven? <laughs> I just something to think about. I just think about that. Where is heaven and hell? I want to end by talking about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, right, is really what heaven is. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, as he began preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. We're he told that after he rose from the dead and before he ascended to heaven, he spent 40 days doing nothing but preaching the kingdom of the kingdom to his disciples. And then he told them to go and preach the kingdom. When he sent them out in the gospels, he sent them out to do what? To preach the kingdom. What is the kingdom? In its most simple sense, the kingdom is the way Christ wants things to be. It's the way Christ wants things to be. So, um, when I was a kid, we always took our vacations in Florida. We went to, that's where we went. We drove from here to Florida all the time. And, uh, Contrary to what my sister says, she says that I was always the uh, favored child, what actually would take place in those trips is we would drive down, a very long drive, right, like 15 hours, is my parents would make me, because my sister liked to sleep and she didn't want anybody on the back seat with her. She wanted total freedom. She wanted to rule and reign her kingdom. I would sit on the floor, sit on the floor. Now, that's cute when you're five. But when you're 13, 14, 15 years old and you're, you're, you're huddled in the back of the car on the floorboard so that your sister can have her whole kingdom, where it's everything the way she wants it to be, it's a little awkward. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is when your, your life, your space is happening just the way you want it to be. And what is God's kingdom? Very simple. It's when God's will is perfectly being done. When everything that Christ, the way he wants it done, is being done. Jesus says in Sermon on Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. We should seek it first, his kingdom, the way he wants things done. This is why we read in Romans chapter 8, it says we are conformed to the image of his son. Why are we being conformed? So that we could live out the way he wants things to be done. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being what? transformed into the image of God. That's all discipleship language. That's all about advancing his kingdom. It's all about his kingdom coming because we're making choices day by day, day by day, choice by choice to actually live out. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13, right, which is this great what we call the love chapter of the Bible, it gives you all these decisions. There's 15 decisions that define love. I make the decision to be patient when I feel like being impatient. Ah, the kingdom of God is breaking through. I make the decision to be kind when I feel like being unkind. Ah, the kingdom of God is breaking through. That's how the kingdom of God breaks through. That's how it's at hand. That's how it comes down. When I make the decision not to be bitter and keep no record of wrong, that's when the kingdom of God is breaking through. They were waking up to a way of life. They weren't waking up to saying, I have my ticket punched and I'm on my way to heaven. They were waking up to a way of life. What do you think is under this cloth? What do you think is under that cloth? And do you think it has transformed and changed in these five weeks? What's been under that cloth? You're never going to find out today, but... (laughs) Mark, Mark Twain said this. Mark Twain said this. He said, kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see kindness, which the Bible calls us to, is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. You know what I think? Every single person in this room and every person watching on Grace Live is a miracle worker. You can open eyes and ears by following Jesus Christ. You could advance his kingdom in this world by following Jesus Christ. You can perform miracles in his name. And so we gather for an hour every Sunday Not to be reminded that our ticket has been punched. We gather for an hour every Sunday to learn more about Jesus and how we could live his life out and advance his kingdom and preach his kingdom here on earth. And when we do, when we do that, the world is radically changed. It was changed radically, radically 2,000 years ago because that was their concept of salvation. Every time, everybody, that I choose to be a giving person, every time that I choose to be a forgiving person or a serving person or pray for my enemies as Christ has taught me to do, when I choose to be patient or kind or keep no record of wrong, if I'm a workaholic and I'm ignoring my family and my friends or my own health, if I choose to confront my own addiction to work, And deal with it. I am choosing to allow God's kingdom to break through on earth. When I choose to confront my addictions, whatever it might be, I am choosing to confess that addiction and to seek help. What I'm doing is allowing God's kingdom to break through on earth. It's extraordinarily practical. This is how God's kingdom is advanced day by day, decision by decision, that is in keeping with the ways of Jesus Christ. When I stand for truth and justice and I pursue mercy and grace, then I am advancing God's kingdom on earth, leading to the salvation of other people who see his way of life reflected through me. This is discipleship. Where is heaven in hell? I experience heaven every time a slice of it every time I choose Christ's way. And I experience a piece of hell every time I choose against Christ's way. I experience heaven and hell right here, right now. It's not a destination. It's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not about getting up there. It's about getting what's up there down here. If your idea of salvation is, I just got to get myself to there, that was not their concept. Their concept of salvation is we have got to get his kingdom, Jesus' way, down here and break through. And every time I make those decisions in keeping with Jesus Christ, it is breaking through a little more and more and more and more. It's very upside down to the way we think. We can experience salvation today. We can experience heaven today. We can experience like Zacchaeus today today. Salvation has come to your house. And many times when I think about this, everybody, I think about the fact that actually this concept of salvation has been staring us square in the face for a long time. That it's not about having my ticket punched. It's not about me, oh, I just got to get myself up there, undermining following Jesus, undermining discipleship, undermining a way of life. When I see it's a way of life, it actually It actually advances discipleship in a masterful way. And I think that maybe, maybe we have been missing it far too often because the most famous prayer that has ever been prayed is in Matthew 6. It's the Lord's Prayer. And what does it say right at the beginning? Thy kingdom come. It doesn't say, our Father who art in heaven, please take me to heaven. What it says is, Our Father who art in heaven, Thy kingdom come. Bring your will down here. I want to be a vessel that reflects yours. Listen. Maybe you have or maybe you have not read how this whole story ends in the book of Revelation. My concept for all my life growing up is I just want to go to heaven. I got to get out of here and up there. But do you know how the story ends in Revelation 21? What's up there is coming down here. John says, I saw heaven coming down, coming down. We get to participate in that by following the ways of Christ. That's why the world was radically changed 2,000 years ago. And historians, secular included, look back and say, we don't know what happened, but something happened. It's because a group of people were so fired up that they discovered the great riddle of the universe that it is following the ways of Christ, that we can bring heaven down here. So I'd like us to end um, in a special way this morning. I'd like us to pray together this most famous prayer that his kingdom would actually come. It's on the screen or it's on your bulletin on the back. Could we all just pray this together and believe as our prayer that we will be followers of Christ and that we will advance his kingdom. And if you're not a church person here today and this is really just different for you, I think that most all of us can really, really, really respect somebody's ways who are loving and forgiving and kind and stands for truth and stands for justice and stands for equality. I I think I bet everybody in the room would say, yep, sign me up. I'm all for that. That is Jesus. That's his way. This is what we're praying for. All right, shall we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory